Your support of the Candid Frame over the past 12 years has been invaluable to us. You have not only helped us to produce over 400 episodes, but your donations directly helped us to create the Candid Frame app and making it available for free. We are now proud to announce the release of a new way for you to listen to TCF. We have released a new skill that is compatible with Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. Using voice commands, you can listen to the latest episodes, jump forward and back, and if you stop listening partway through an episode, it will remember where you left off. And like the Candid Frame app, it's free for users in the U.S. and Canada. In the coming months, the skill will be available in other countries. And I'll let you know when those become available. You can help and continue to support the work that we do here by contributing as little as $2 a month to our Patreon campaign. You not only help us to meet our cost of production, but provide us the means to improve the quality of the show and do so much more. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. This is Ibadi and X, and this is the candid frame. Since I graduated college, I've been blessed. I say this because every job I've had in my professional career has been related to photography. So along with working at Nikon, serving as an editor at Outdoor Photographer and Digital Photo Pro Magazine, as well as my years as a freelancer and podcaster, I've had the chance to meet some great people in the photo industry. And over time, these people have gained a wealth of knowledge that's invaluable, not only with respect to current technology and trends, but for understanding how photography has and continues to change over time. Kevin Raber is one of those people for me. As well as running the great website Luminous Landscape, he has worked in the industry for decades as a photographer, a studio runner, as well as the creator of a successful studio management software. But it's the rich perspective and contagious enthusiasm that makes him such a treasure in today's photo industry. And I'm so pleased to have the opportunity to sit down with him and chat and talk about photography then and now. been following the luminous landscape for quite a while now i think it's just a uh, wonderful wonderful resource now we're trying to make it better you know we've like yourself i mean you, you is this really a money-making opportunity we're never going to get rich doing what we're doing oh god knows yeah um you know luckily i've made a good career in photography that allows me to do what i'm doing so you know at, at my ripe age of 64 now and i hope to get at least 10 more years out of this uh, at least <laughs> but um I guess in my career, I've been very fortunate photography-wise and income-wise and career-wise to have done many things in the industry and, and be where I am. So, you know, it, it, this site is a passion. You know, Michael Reichman, who was the founder of the site, you know, was one of my best friends. And when I knew he was sick and, you know, things were changing with my career where I was, it was time to um, take a look. And I said over wine one night, what would you think about, you know, what, what's going to happen to Luminous Landscape? And he says, well, I don't know. I said, well, I'd be interested. So, you know, we, we talked about it. And next thing you know, you know, I kind of joined partnership with him. And, you know, we worked together for two, two and a half years, which was a lot longer than he expected. He thought it would be six months before he died. And he managed to get two and a half years. And uh-huh. he kept biting the cancer, beating the cancer. And then when, boy, I'm telling you, we were in Hawaii in February together, uh, vacationing uh, in Malachi. And, you know, by May, he was gone, mm-hmm. you know, with just, 
it just it the the thing just was oh just boom what it came and it got him and it took him um yeah, sad to see but uh you know we carry on the tradition now you know the, it, luckily we both shared the same passion and uh, if we can help other photographers enjoy the passion and do things and mission accomplished you know yeah well that's one of the projects coming up i'll tell you all about those uh, yeah yeah but that's one of the things the youtube channel new youtube show coming on monday oh do you oh, oh good on the rocks Three men talking photography, drinking whiskey. What could go wrong oh with that? My God. <laughs> that sounds like an awesome idea. That's great. Oh, I look forward to seeing those. Those should be a lot of fun. But I have to say, but I have to say that one of the reasons I, I, I love the work that you and Michael did. I, when I saw the videos with you two guys together, it was always really fun because you yeah. could see that you guys really loved each other and there was a, a wonderful friendship. And you guys would just hang out, and it didn't come off as um, something that was just done for to be in front of the camera. Yep. Um, and, and that's and that's something that I've always really liked about the content that you guys have produced and, and is that here are, you know, people who have been in this industry for a very long time and you guys maintained maintain the same enthusiasm that I imagine you had as kids when you first, photo, you know, started making photographs. Yeah. And it's so nice to see, because I've been in the industry not as long as you, but I've been around for probably 30 years now. And you see all kinds, right? Yep, yep. And, and and it's always nice to be able to, when you sit down with someone who still has the love for what they do, they may earn their living from it, but they still oh. love it. Right? Well, you know, there was two things I wanted to be in life, a firefighter and a photographer. And, you know, I've been both. Like, you know, like I said, I count my blessings every day, um, especially to have done what I've done and, you know, been and, and done all the things that I've done in this industry. It's And know all the people I know. It's yeah. just it's it's a fun industry, although it's changed uh, photography as a whole. And I, I'm just setting things up for our discussion. I hope with what we're talking about here. Um, but you know, photography as a whole has changed. You know, we uh, in the in the day, uh, photography was all about getting to the print. Right. And now it's not so much getting to the print. You know, there's a lot of uh, influencers out there, as I call them, which are fairly good photographers. But I went to a Sony Can Do event last year. Um, which is where they bring all their influencers or, and, you know, all their people they give cameras to. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was funny. I mean, and, and no offense against the, the new generation, but it seemed you need a fedora, black shirts, black pants, and fancy shoes. And, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it was like there, there wasn't a lot of individuality. It was all about – and. I don't know. And, and I'm trying to say, God, I probably was that same way when I was you know, young in photography, too. But mm-hmm. it seems that part of the element has gone out of photography. I used to look at it as creating art. Now it's creating likes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, how many people can I get to like it or how many people can, you know, um, oh, you know, I can I can get as followers. So. Um, you know, so there's some creative stuff going on and the group was interesting, but boy, did I sit at the tables, have dinner with them and learn photography has changed. These people have no idea what it used to be. They don't even make prints. They don't mm-hmm. go to websites. They get their information off of YouTube and Instagram and that's their life. And it's silly questions. You know, we talk to them about like, I'd, I'd throw a trick question in there. Like, you know, uh, you know, who was the vice president or, you know, weird little questions just to see how much of the world they knew. And they didn't know. It wasn't so much the only thing that was their own little universe, their own little group of friends and, you know, taking pictures and and being recognized and, you know, hanging out with those same people. Um, It wasn't a very broad scope. 
But, and, and, you know, there are some really good guys out there doing some really aggressive work, too. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, don't get me wrong, but it's those guys that I really admire because photography today as a career is so much harder that when you see, you know, this new generation coming up and actually doing really cool work, you know, right. you got to admire it. But I, I just look at how fast and how much has changed in the last 20 years and specifically probably more in the last five years. Yeah, you know, because I was looking at this man in your career, and I and I sort of felt like I mirrored a lot of that because I, for me, my entire life has been career of photography, but not because of any grand scheme. Right? It just it just one thing would lead to another and lead to another and lead to another. And other than a stint at Del Taco while I was in high school, (laughs) all my jobs involved photography in one form or another. And, you know, I see that, you know, that, you know, you picked up a camera when you were 12, you know, you went to art school and then that segued into, you know, a a career working at a lab and then you're working in a studio and then working for phase one. And it's just, and I wonder about that whole sort of playing out when you look at it in retrospect, uh, you know, what do you make about the fact that your, your path has always been photorelated, except for that stint as a firefighter. Exactly what I wanted it to do. And as you, as you go through the career, you know, I, I had a tendency n- not to sit around and wait for the phone to ring. I would stick my foot indoors. I would take my portfolio out. And sometimes I would get myself in projects that I had no clue of. For example, back in probably the late 70s, 78, so forth, you know, there was no internet back then. There was everything, you know, you wanted to buy something, you got mail order catalogs. Everything mm-hmm. we get oh, yeah. online now. You know, it was, you know, you get Eddie Bauer, you get Sears catalog, everything was, you know, you, you stack some catalogs and, you know, you fill out an order form, put it in the mail and um, two weeks later it shows up. I mean, you know, who, who, we couldn't live that way. <laughs> but uh, I remember when this guy, I was um, at a rotary meeting, this guy was there and he goes, I see you're a photographer. You have a great lecture. I guess they must have lectured there or something. And he goes, do you do catalog work? Oh, yeah, sure. He says, well, you know, I have this mail order catalog called Taylor Gifts. You know, we do about, you know, three million catalogs twice a year. He says, oh, yeah, that's cool. He says, well, I'm not happy with the photographer I got. You know, can I send you over like six products and you shoot them? And if I like them, maybe we can talk. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the story goes, you know, I was a young guy. I see, 76. I would probably be like 21, 22, you know, yeah. somewhere in that neighborhood age-wise. And, you know, he liked the images I did. I basically did them on a Calumet 4x5 view camera because they, you know, was what we shot 4x5. And they had to be shot to size. So, you know, I had to draw like a little grease pencil thing on the back of the uh, the, the ground glass and, you know, shot transparency. Then I had to send them out. And then the transparencies would get stripped into the acetate carriers. And then, you know, hot type was put on top of those oh, in the wow. printer spreads. And so the next thing you know, he gave me the freaking job. It was worth a lot of money. I had no idea what to do. Um, I had to learn everything. I fucked up a lot. You know, my, you think of my mom. I was kind of working out of my home at that point, And the whole tractor trailer full of products to shoot shows up in her driveway. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> And she's, she was happy that I was doing something. I mean, I turned the living room and the dining room into, you know, the studio. I had nice lights. I had, a, you know, I spent money on brown color lights. I mean, I always invested in good equipment. So I had the, the, the gear to do it. But holy shit, you know, I was running in and out of the tractor trailer, unpacking these boxes, you know, setting them up on these backgrounds. So it was all plain colored background paper. You know, photographing them, you know, the, the lab courier was coming two or three times a day, bringing stuff back and taking stuff away to the lab. And, you know, 
Meanwhile, I was trying to do everything. And then, you know, at night I would, you know, get the, the transparencies back, cut them with an acetate knife, you know, f- cut the acetate, pin register everything. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I learned. And, you know, yeah. it was all because I had the balls, you know, not to back away from it. And as a result, we got good at that. And we ended up with, you know, half a dozen big catalog contracts and 20 some odd employees, a few bays worth of, uh, you know, uh, setting setups where we could shoot this stuff. And, you know, we were making tons of tons of money. And I have heard so many countless stories of people who did not let the fact they didn't know how to do it, keep them from doing it, you know, because they were just like, I'm just going to figure it out. And Um, it's amazing. I mean, because I think too many people make the excuse that because they don't know how to do it, that they don't make the effort at all to even try. You know, and I see and I've heard countless stories of people who have not allowed themselves to be limited by that. And they just go, I'm just going to jump in and try and figure it out. This is what's the worst that can happen. Yeah. You know, the worst that can happen is you, you lose money on it, but, you know, you get a good experience out of it. I think that's the best way we always learn. I mean, you've heard the the phrase, you know, getting thrown in the deep end and you have to learn how to swim. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I've done a lot of jumping in the deep end in my life and, um, you know, managed to tread water sometimes and actually made it to the other side of the pool many other times, you know, but uh, that's how you get ahead. Yeah. So when did the firefighting fit in? Because I'm I'm trying to figure out exactly so, when. You know, kind of a volunteer and and part time stuff. You know, it was a way to simply get my rocks off. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I guess I, I as a photographer, I had photographed a couple um, fires at one point. I got the I went to the firehouse and they liked my photography and they asked if I wanted to be a firehouse photographer and. So I kind of did, and the next thing I know, you know, I would I joined up and became a firefighter. That allowed me to see some terrible things and some amazing things. You know, I saved a few people. I I birthed a couple of babies. Oh my god! Uh, and I got my rocks off, squirting water and chopping holes in people's houses. So you're dealing with a lot of residential fires and commercial fires. Well, residential and commercial. You know, when my second year as a firefighter, we had um, a nursing home fire where we had 14 people die, and it changed a lot of nursing home laws. Uh. Um, so you, you grow up pretty quickly when you're trying to rescue a hundred people out of a flaming nursing home. So, you know, we had industry, you know, uh, residential factories, retail, I mean, as a firefighter, you learn everything. We had a helicopter plane uh, collision above a, a playground that wasn't too pleasant. And so in, in the, you, you sort of see a few things and been there and, you know, so I've been around, let's just put it that way. Um, it's a lot of that stuff I've put behind me. I, I quit in 2002. So, you know, I lived in Long Island when uh, 9-11 happened, uh, and that's where the phase one offices were. Uh, the volunteer fire department I belonged to there, we got called into the city that that evening to do search. And, you know, that was uh, one of those occasions where, you know, you, you just can't imagine the immensity of something. And the only thing I just remember, and I wrote about this on the site, there's a ranatorial on the site about um, remembering 9-11. That was kind of one of those moments, and eventually, a year after that, uh, I had one son left in high school, and I decided to move off of Long Island and move to Indiana, uh, only because I was familiar with Indiana from a previous part of my career, mm-hmm. and I found the best school system and got him into that school system and said, you know, I'll get him through high school and then, um, you know, go search somewhere else, but I ended up in Indianapolis. I love it here. It's a cute little city. It's it's got uh, some really cool up-and-coming art stuff. I, my my gallery and studios in a really badass uh, building with antique cars and about a hundred and some odd other artists. Um, and uh, there's no traffic jams and there's no New York and my money goes a hell of a lot farther. So yeah. 
Um, but uh, after 2002, uh, I kind of just gave that stuff up. It's a young person's job, and I had done it for you know a whole bunch of years. So, um, but during that time, photography was always the focus. You know, the uh, made my living in photography, and uh, maybe let's just go back a little, and I'll give you a brief history so that maybe you can point way into some other discussions. I guess I graduated high school in 72 and went to Philadelphia College of Art and did a photo film major there, which was kind of fun. You know, it's funny. When I was searching for places, uh, I went to RIT and looked at RIT. And because they had cinder block walls, I didn't want to go there. You know, the art mentality yeah, mm-hmm. hit me time, you know, of me said, ah, this is too institutional. I can't do that. And then, you know, but the, the art school thing where Philadelphia College of Art, you know, it was ragged studios and holes in the wall and, you know, it was kind of that artsy fartsy kind of thing so I, I elected to go to philadelphia college of art and i had some great teachers um i mean they were art photographers um some were really good some you know they were probably teaching because they couldn't do anything else but the ones that were good were good and influenced me for quite a long time uh, one of my professors was a woman her, her name was barbara blondeau and she just did some incredible photography, but she was diagnosed with cancer and you know died within a year of you know being one of the professors. But uh, she put a big influence on me as far as photography goes. And then Ray Metzger was a, another instructor. Oh, really? And, wow. You know Ben Rose, and so there was a you know a good influence to, to make me see a lot of things differently. I can't say that it affected the way my uh, work ended up going, but they were good instructors, and you know, I learned how to see and do some really, really cool uh, photography. And photography back then was pretty fun. I mean, we were shooting film, and you know, we had to focus a camera for God's sakes, and <laughs> needed to make a phone call. You had to spend a quarter in a payphone, you know. So it wasn't wasn't like we see today. But you know, it was it was a great time to be a photographer, and. Um, it was a real community in you know the sense that rather than see people on screens and and you know devices, you would get together and see each other. So in you know Philly and their places, there was places called like the photography places, one of the places, and it was a gallery. But you know photographers could gather there and you know meet and share things and and do some things and. Um, you know, my, my biggest joy back then was, you know, spending nights in the dark room. I had big Morant speakers, oh, and a, yeah. a big old amplifier tuner thing, which, you know, had duct tape all over it. So none of the light would come into the, the, the dark room. And, you know, you just sit in front of the enlarger and play music and develop pictures and, God, that was heaven. Yeah, now we do the same thing, but it's on a computer screen with, you know, Bose speakers or headphones on. And you, know, you use the same techniques, dodging and burning and, um, you know, other things like that. You know, we couldn't do layers and we couldn't do a lot of the things that we've got today in, in Photoshop and so forth. But, God, it was a great time. Um, and then, you know, as, as my studio grew, uh, we added more people, went through the catalogs. We did a lot of portraits. We had a wedding, you know, thing side of things we did. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be right in the middle of a corporate area. So I had Chilton Publishing, TV Guide, YF Laboratory, Laboratory Smith, Klein and Beckman, Alcoa, Alco Standard, uh, you know, a whole slew of really good customers, Sears. I did all the Sears paint stuff at one time, which, mm. you know, back then they had Betsy Ross house paint, you know, they kind of oh, were colonial. Yeah. 
So, you know, we would photograph the, the rooms and, and do some cool stuff. I didn't know how to do interiors, but I learned, and it's one of those sort of things. So, you know, it was, it was a, a great time, and I was doing very well. And it turns out uh, in 85, when the Mac came out, I saw what the, the Macintosh was offering. So I started a small software company uh, with the intent of writing studio management software. One of the things that, you know, when my studio got to the size it did, I had to learn how to manage everything. And I was doing everything on five by eight cards with little tabs on them so that if I opened up a five by eight card drawer, I could look down a row of tabs. And this, if this row was red, blue, or yellow, I could pull the cards and know what certain things were and set up by dates and type of photography and so forth. And I said there had to be a better way. You know, and then once this computer kind of came into play, I started with a Commodore computer, and you know you might remember Commodore. Um, Commodore sixty four, and actually yeah. turned out to be a client of mine. They they were only two miles away from my studio, so all the Vic sixty four and you know Commodore twenty and all these we did all the photography for them, and it was kind of a pretty cool job, uh, and did well for us at that time. Uh, so I learned how to do some database stuff on the Commodore, but once the Mac showed up, you know I knew. This was the future. Mm-hmm. So uh, we started programming on the Macintosh, and um, we released a program called uh, Phoenix, and I started a company called Studio Information Systems, and it was basically a, a management software uh, program for studios. And the next thing I know, because there was anything like that, we were selling a ton of them. And uh, the program itself was called Phoenix because it allowed the studio to you know, kind of come from nowhere and become something, and it was really successful. But one day I did a whole bunch of uh, corporate portraits of a venture capital firm. And the guy who owned the firm, he came in to pick up his portraits and he said, would you ever consider selling your studio? Well, I don't know. I mean, I kind of figured I'd be opening this door for the rest of my life. He said, well, I've got somebody who's interested in purchasing it. I said, really? He says, yeah, I've looked into this. So we talked and, you know, talked and talked for a while and, Eventually, it was too good to turn down, and it, it, to me, after being in it for almost 20 years, it was probably 18 years, it was about 1980, yeah, around 1980, I suppose. No, 1989, excuse me. I had decided, well, it was a good deal, so I sold the studio. After I completed that sale, I'm at the closing table, and he goes, now let's talk about software. You got the software thing. I have somebody that's interested in, in, in it. I go, really? I mean, this guy's turning out to be like a windfall for me. And just because I did his his executive portrait. He had a company that was interested in buying the the management package and then turning it into a vertical market package for hairdressers and dentists and uh, pet stores and things like that. Because, you know, it was like one of the only things there was. So I ended up selling, uh, you know, that uh, package also. And it was like, all right, so now I'm unemployed, got a bunch of money. What do I do? So I visited the, the lab. There was a lab called Burrell Color in Crown Point, Indiana. And I was doing a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in processing with them. So we were a fairly large account. And I went to visit the guy, and his name was Don Burrell. Super, super nice guy. You know, smart like a fox in the photo industry, you know. And we sat down, and uh, I kind of told him, I said, you know, um, I sold my studio, but the guy who's buying it's going to stick with you. I'm going to be with him for several months getting the transition and helping him, you know, learn the operation and so forth. But I want to let you know that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be moving on doing something. I don't know what it is yet. So we started talking about the industry and what was happening. You know, there was hints of digital, really tiny hints that there, something was changing. Then he started telling me the problem with his business. And he had 16 sales guys, roughly. 
that would, you know, cover one or two states each. He was complaining in the sense that, you know, he was seeing an attrition of customers. So he would lose customers and gain new customers. And as a result, not growing. Uh, you know, there were so many color labs that other color labs would come in and, you know, say, well, you know, we'll, we'll give you 10% off whatever you spent last year. So, you know, there was a lot of that kind of game playing. So what I told him, and this is that it comes back to that not knowing what you're talking about, but thinking you do kind of thing, right. you know. And I said, well, you know what your problem is? <laughs> it was really, <laughs> I said, you, you're not seeing the, the whole picture. I said, you're not growing your customers. I said, you know, you've got to learn how to grow your customers. And now part of that, it came from the fact that my studio management software was all about marketing, meaning if you photographed a family portrait, you take a record of when the, the birthdays of the kids are, as well as the anniversaries of the couple and all their pertinent data. Um, and then, like I said, I used to use a card file to um, you know, pull the cards and, you know, know who's what, but the computer said, okay, I want to send a birthday card to everybody that was born this month, you know, and the computer could spit this, the, the labels out and we would put labels on postcards and we'd mail them. and we would do the same thing for wedding anniversaries, but we would mail it to the husband saying, you know, your anniversary is yeah. coming up. Why did you remember your anniversary? And, you know, maybe a nice picture of uh, the kids and you for your wife would be good. So what we were trying to do and what we ended up doing was we were, once we had a client, we learned how to market to that client more often. And we did the same thing with the commercial accounts. So, you know, the commercial accounts were the same way, but we handled them a little bit differently. We would send out our commercial flyers on a regular basis. Uh, you know, we would tease them with creative things. We would offer a promotion, you know, uh, by, you know, two or three days worth of photography, get you know, one day at half, half fee kind of thing. So, you know, we were always staying in front of people's pictures. I would do creative shots, like I'd take an ice cube and figure out a way to make it light on fire. And then I would put a poster together, red hot ideas that are really cool and, you know, send that out and creative weird things like that. I told Don Burrell at Burrell Color, I said, what you got to do is learn how to teach your customers how to uh, do better and sell more. So rather than try to go out and find new customers, take the customers you have and grow them. You know, show them how to answer the phone better. Show them how to write, uh, ask the right questions when somebody calls up and how much is an 8 by 10 You know, it's not so much about how much 8 by 10 is. How big is the wall space where you want to display your picture? Yeah. And, you know, what What does your husband do? What do you do? How, you know, what are your kids interested in? So that, like, if the kids, you know, were doing a family portrait, not only would you do the family, but you'd do the couple. You would do each of the kids individually. You'd do the kids together, the kids with dad, the kids with mom. Separate everything. Break them apart. Do as many pictures as you can. Get more sellable pictures. So if I could increase the, the photographer's sales by 50%, think what it would do to the color line. Where, you know, you didn't have to do this. So what they, they, so many of these mom and pop studios needed was uh, a consultant that would help them be a partner in their business and learn how to grow their businesses uh, by asking the right questions, learning how to sell better mm. and learning how to take better images and better poses. And so, you know, that, and that, and that was even before a lot of workshops were being done. And a lot of this actually turned into workshops yeah. and things. 
So, you know, that was kind of fun time. And I ended up working for them for a year as kind of a trial. And then I ended up coming on and be, become business development manager. One day I fired all the sales guys in the other room. We rehired most of them and hired a bunch of new aggressive guys and, uh, you know, had a great system. And Burrell went on to buying, you know, nine other color labs and two supply houses. And uh, we had a corporate jet. We would go out and pick up customers and bring them into the lab to give them tours. And it was uh, a real golden age. And in the middle of all that, uh, Don Burrell came to me and another gentleman named Mike Williams and said, Here's a check. I'm going to build a building. You two now are in charge of making it digital. I want ours to be one of the very first digital color labs in the in the country. And, you know, it was like we knew digital was coming. And this is 85 roughly right now. Okay, you yeah. know, about. No, 95. Excuse me. I'm sorry if I have date problems. I'm, <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting date challenged. So. You know, he gave us a big check, and we learned how to start trying to figure out how to automate the color lab business. Um, and the goal was there were still no cameras out there. You know, the the earliest camera at that point still was in a suitcase with a big hard drive with, you know, one megabyte hard drive uh, and a big cord. And it was made by Kodak, and, you know, it was kind of cool. I mean, but it was a big suitcase, and you could tell where it was going. But the, the our goal was to have photographers shoot film, send the film in, scan the film, on a high-end, you know, scanner, deliver them a CD with the images, and then they could use a computer program with these images, show them to their customers, place their order. We would rescan the film to high res, and you know, apply the cropping, and then rewrite a new negative with retouching done in the middle. And it was a very sophisticated system for the time. And we got a chance to work with Kodak and um, the company that made the uh, light jet printer and the Lambda printer Durst. And we did experimentation on CRT imaging, which was used as CRT tube, which was really narrow and had a red, green, and blue, um, you know, line and kind of like a linear kind of printer, uh, LED printing and laser printing and, and some inkjet printing on indigo printers. So we were really cutting edge at the time and a lot of failures and a lot of learning and so forth. And during that time, what was amazing was, and it comes back to the old Kodak story, Kodak was on top of the game. They were inventing stuff. Oh, left. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they had all this stuff. They, they started inventing digital cameras, inkjet printing. You know, they were doing some fabulous stuff on video. Um you know, they really had this giant, giant facility where they just tested all this stuff. And we would get a chance to work with these people. But, you know, these people were just as frustrated because as we were, as we were adapting this, uh, Kodak wasn't keeping up with it. They, they would have this technology, but they wouldn't go anywhere with it because they weren't, they were afraid to jeopardize their, their business. Mm-hmm. You know, they were in the consumer business. They couldn't see how digital would ever benefit them. But they knew it was there. They just couldn't figure out how to, you know, turn to turn and look where they ended up. Yeah. You know, and this is something, you know, which right now we're probably witnessing quite a lot with uh, uh, Nikon and, and Canon and uh, in, in the mirrorless war. Mm-hmm. And if you watch our new video series, um, it's on YouTube channel. Lunas Landscape has a YouTube channel. It's called On the Rocks. Our first episode, we talk a lot about that in the sense that uh, we talk about the industry and photography as it is today. And we're seeing kind of like uh, Canon and Icon play that, that same Kodak game. What's happened in the last year is that specifically if you ask B&H and most of the you know, independent uh, camera stores, 
people come in asking for mirrorless. You know, they want something smaller, they want something quicker. And when you look at the fact that a company like Sony and even Fuji, uh, they're, they're, they're an Olympus too, um, they're, they're innovating at such a rate, such a rate. You know, when you got a camera company like Sony that last year put out six new cameras, I think the year before they put out nine, and you look at where they are today, you know, like the A7 III for under $1,900, it gets super fast autofocus, 24 megapixel, you know, great dynamic range, you know, good 10 frames per second, I believe it is. They've got the super lenses. I mean, you know, they're, they've got some issues. You know, I, I don't like their menu system. I did a whole video just to teach people how to use their menu, menu system. Boy, if they're not teaching us something about what mirrorless is all about. And, you know, when you see all the stories on the Internet about people moving from one cat, camera platform like Canon or Nikon to Sony, you know, the Sony guys must be meeting or not the, the Canon and Nikon guys must be having meetings going, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, now they're talking. Well, we got mirrorless coming. But the big question is, you know, for them is, uh, can they catch up? You know, what happens with their legacy glass? And this is a, you know, mm-hmm. interesting story. You know, Canon's and Nikon have these big cameras and they've got legacy cameras. Canon's got, or Nikon's got a beautiful camera, the 850 right now. Well, you know, that's probably saved their bacon last year when you, when you think about it, because other than that, what did they really have? Um, but it's probably the last great DSLR. Uh, we will we'll probably see, but, but you know the question is, can they put their legacy glass on a mirrorless system, which is going to be pretty hard because of the lens, the flange distance, and the way you know that it works. And why would you want a big bulky camera? You know, essentially you're taking the mirror, the the mechanism, the mirror box out of it. So it'd be curious to see where Canon and Nikon end up, and you know they're going to have to go nuclear in that sense of you know if they do release something, be so good to get their customers to switch over. Uh, meanwhile, you know Sony's just going to keep marching forward. You know yeah. we've got some great predictions on where you know I think the future lies. I wouldn't be surprised. You know we're going to see a hundred megapixel medium format camera both at uh, with Hasselblad and Fuji this year. Um, you know if you take that. Uh, that chip and kind of cut out a 35 millimeter frame, you're talking 60 megapixels or roughly, you know, thereabouts. Why can't they put that into a Sony camera? Yeah. But you, you, you know, you've been privy to a lot of conversations with a lot of these manufacturers, uh, especially recently. And I, I'm wondering, you know, because a, a big part of it is the fact that with the evolution of the invention of the, of the cell phone, that the, the, the market for the consumer camera has completely been almost eliminated uh, oh, yeah. to a great degree. And that was basically the bread and butter of a lot of these manufacturers, where now, yeah. you know, you don't see compact digital cameras available at all. So how are these manufacturers, from your perspective, seeing the market for photography? Because, you know, what they used to rely on in terms of a good source of income is gone. And though there may be, there is an explosion in interest in, in digital photography, I don't know whether or not it's actually translating into people who are transitioning from the their cell phones into wanting to start using a, a camera. So what what's your sense of how they're sort of gauging the people who well, would be interested in the I, cameras? I think a company like Sony, for example, and, and, and Fuji, they both have recognized um, where their, their, their business is. And um, so they're not making compact cameras anymore because nobody's buying them. Okay, you've got a cell phone, you know, that has... The capability of taking really nice photographs, it's always with you, with some amazing apps to even do a lot more with your images. So you might as well not even try to fight that. 
So uh, most of these companies like uh, Sony and Fuji have just said, you know, we're maybe we'll make a token camera in that area. Like, for example, Sony makes a really nice compact camera, the um, RX105, uh, which is really small and has great features. But it's more for, you know, an auxiliary camera to those that are using the other side. I think what these manufacturers are looking at is saying, the compact camera business, we got to write off. And those people that want those kind of cameras, you know, for their family snapshots and so forth, are going to go to the, the mobile devices. But there is a group of people that because they're getting more involved with photography as a result of photographing with their phones, um, end up looking at higher end type cameras, whether it be entry level DSLRs or you know even a step up, and deciding that you know they want a camera with some more telephoto capability and they want something a little smaller and you know something that can give them more professional results, and that specifically goes to a lot of the families that. Uh, you know, let's just say, you know, the, the soccer families, you know, whether it be the, the mom or the dad, you know, you kind of want to go to that soccer game. You can't photograph your kid playing soccer on an iPhone, mm-hmm. you know, so you, you want to have that zoom lens and that high speed capability. Um, and the fact that you can, you know, you don't have to buy film. So you put a $2,000 investment out, $2,500 investment out. Now you got a camera that can do video. You got a camera with a telephoto lens that, you know, can catch your son playing soccer, you know, 10 frames a second. You know, you can throw it into iPhoto or just use the JPEGs or, you know, learn how to process raw and, you know, take your work even further. And a lot of these companies are saying that's what they see this evolution coming the more interest in photography with mobile devices is going to generate more interest in photography and the mid to high range devices and you know they're banking on it and i think if you look at sony and fuji you'll see that that's you know kind of coming out to be uh, the truth yeah. there are more people taking pictures with these kind of cameras than there ever were before and, you know, that's because, you know, there's a generally higher interest in photography than there ever has been before. There's not that many people making a living in it right. because it's so hard when mm-hmm. everybody can take good pictures, but more people are taking more pictures. But the, so these companies have decided we're going to make cameras, they're going to make us profit, and we're going to sell, you know, at a decent price with high, you know, um, high quality features built in and, you know, hope that's where our future lies uh, as an auxiliary camera to the phone. Well, with with the point in compact, with the compact cameras, there was a huge market for that. And now that that's gone, yes, there are people who are going to transition from their phones to uh, uh, a "Quote unquote serious digital camera, be it mirrorless, be it mirrorless or DSLR, but it's still a much smaller percentage than, than what they're accustomed to. And is that going to result in some of the manufacturers that we've known a long time really going bye bye? I think some of them are going bye bye. You know, look, Samsung came into this uh, what the last Photokina a few years ago with mm-hmm. a camera that had the most amazing specs, and it didn't last six months. Yeah. They didn't even give it a chance to get off the ground. You know, look at Pentex. Pentex used to be out there. And while they have the KH1 and everything, you don't see a lot of marketing on it. They had a Pentex 645, which was a great camera. They were ahead of the curve. And, you know, now Fuji and Hasselblad have jumped in there and, you know, they just stopped developing that camera. So I think there's some camera companies, specifically those that have, uh, you know, come from a bigger family like, you know, Ryok and all these companies that own some of these camera companies and just going, you know, this is not a market we want to compete. I think, you know, your players in the end are going to be Sony. Uh, it's going to play. They're not going away. I mean, you know, if anything, they're, they're 
they're on. They want to be number one. I think you know, there's a possibility they will. Olympus, you know, it makes marvelous cameras. The problem is, you know, they work with a, a small sensor. But in that niche market, they'll probably be there. Panasonic uses the same sensor, a micro four-thirds sensor. They realized that there was a change coming, and they opted to try to design their cameras to go towards the video guy and the growing interest in people with video. And, you know, when you think about that, the video side of things has grown tremendously, um, specifically because most of these cameras can do pretty good video. Um, the question really comes where and how are Nikon and, and Canon going to pr- pr- uh, position themselves? So... The smaller companies are going to go away. Yes, there's probably, or as I think the uh, I've heard before, they'll be absorbed. You know, like Minolta went away, right? But they're really Sony today. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know, Sony ended up taking Minolta. You know, when they weren't able to figure out the game, and you know, they used a lot of what came with Minolta at the time and evolved their cameras into what we see as the Sony cameras today. You know, we may see that with, with other cameras. You know, there was a lot of talk at one time that, you know, Nikon was having major issues and, you know, maybe Fuji was going to buy them or somebody else. Um, I think we're going to see some of that over the period of time. You know, there aren't going to be that many choices, you know, that there, there used to be out there um, in, in, in the cameras. You know, you've got three, four players and that's what you're going to be playing with. And that's fine. That, you know, that's going to give us, as, you know, as the purchasers, at least some good choices. But you really can't go wrong today. There's not a camera. I'll tell you the camera that, yeah, I hate to do this, <laughs> but you, know, you can't go wrong with finding a camera that takes a good picture except with this one. <laughs> oh. And this is this is the, the Light 16. Um, I don't know. I, I have a review coming out on this pretty soon, and I, I really held up a lot of high hope for this camera, but... It's the first camera that um, I'm really pounding just because it, it's just not what it should be. I mean, you know, why spend $1,900 on a camera like that when there's so many other choices out there these yeah. days? Yeah, I mean, when I just see all the cameras, even the cameras that are just still three or four years old now, it's just like they still are remarkable picture-taking devices. It's, yeah. it's hard to make a mistake in terms of purchasing a camera um, because they deliver on so many counts. Um, you know, it's, I think it's much easier today to define something that gives you, you know, everything you need in order to make, make consistently high quality photographs. It's remarkable. Well, you know, even though I, I run Lula and I've been involved in this industry between, you know, with the Burrell labs and, and phase one and, you know, phase one was an amazing part of my career when I did some amazing stuff at that company, ultimate respect for what they've done and how they've survived and what they're still doing. But, you know, all along, and that's kind of why I like where I am right now, is, you know, I've always had that photography side of things. And why I was able to do well on those two corporation side of things was because, you know, I still took pictures. I still, mm. to me, going out and taking pictures is the ultimate. I, I can't ex- say that enough. To me, it's fun. It's therapy. You know, working the print, uh, you know, and the image on the computer and then finally making a print. And I really, truly believe that a lot of these influencers and a lot of the people that aren't making prints and, you know, rely on Instagram and social media, you know, they're 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 going to die and nobody's going to see their work. In the end, the only way you're going to be known when you go is because there's something you leave behind. And it's not a file, it's a print, a signed print that you can leave behind. And, you know, until you make those prints and begin to really appreciate them, 
you know, that's the true end of photography is the print. That's always what we ended up, whether we're shooting in for magazines that ended up in a magazine print or, you know, we're shooting uh, a portrait that could go on a, you know, a mantle in a living room. It all had to do with, with the print. I mean, back in the day and, you know, now it's great that we have multimedia and social media and all the different things that we can, you know, share things in a digital form, but still, there is nothing like a print. Yeah. And this is the other thing that's about the best thing you can imagine in photography today. All right. You take a, a high-end camera, whether it be Phase 1 or a Sony or an Icon Canon, they all do great digital capture with dynamic range to the likes that we've never seen before. I mean, you know, in the film days, we were lucky to get four five stops dynamic range. And even that was pu pushing it because you had no way to, you know, go in there and open up shadows and recover highlights. You know, you, you sacrifice something and decided what it was you wanted to keep and you work within that range. You know, now we have digital printers that allow you to print pure black all the way to pure white, you know, zero to 255, mm -hmm. you know, going on that zero to 255 scale. You can actually, I mean, it's not even subjective. It's, it's quantitative, you know, and now we can make a print with so much detail in it and the fine detail, meaning, you know, using a raw processor and a good camera, you know, we can massage the file until we get just the right shadow detail. You know, we recovered on the highlights. Um, you know, we've got the colors to the kind of range that we want. And then you make a print. And what I like to do is make a print that I consider immersive. So I like to make big prints. And, you know, I put them up in, in the studio gallery. And then I judge something. If you were my, my photographer friend and you could come over and, and have a glass of wine, every now and then I invite my friends, come over and have a glass of wine. And I put these pictures up on the wall and I want to see what happens. Because, you know, they're big ones and they look at them, but they find something in it and they start stepping closer and closer and closer and closer. You know, they see something and they start immersing themselves in the image. And then they're starting to find the little details, you know, the flower in a window of a house, you know, in, in the big scene, you know, the leaf on a rock, you know, on a landscape, you know, that has a drop of water on it. You know, and that's what I would call an immersive image. You know, you look at the big shot and then you are sucked into the details of the, the image. And that is what digital gives us today that to me is probably one of the most exciting things about taking photographs is because now you can make such brilliant and great prints on such a variety of papers. You're not worrying about chemistry and fading and all the different things that you wanted to. And you can make that file and you can print it a hundred times and make it exactly the same each time. Yeah, and you guys have been and, an amazing resource when it comes to printing. I've watched a lot of your videos there, to learn, and I've learned thanks. an incredible amount uh, as a result of the work that you guys have done on your site. But but l let's talk about the philosophy behind the luminous landscape, because I think it's, okay. I really would like to hear more from the horse's mouth on, on what that <laughs> is for you guys. In, in the beginning, when Michael created the site, uh, Michael Reichman, the founder of uh, Luminous Landscape, he didn't know he was creating a monster. You know, it was just a friend of his, Chris Sanderson, who's still with me and does my some of my video work, almost all of it, um, suggested that, well, you should start a website. And, uh, um, you know, because websites were just beginning. This was like, uh, you know, 90, 99 or something, I guess. And Michael was writing a lot of articles. So put some of these articles you're writing on, on the web. So that's what kind of Michael did, because Michael 
was one of these guys that was in the corporate environment, loved photography, did some photography as a career in a camera store and as a photographer, but ended up going into the communication industry, succeeding very well there. Somebody bought his company, and now you know he had this. He could kind of retire, and he just now had this passion for photography and technology and digital was coming of age. So it was like, wow, I mean, he was just sucked right into this thing. And of course, all of us that were trying to learn, we're looking for resources and you know, he's one of the only resources. So the luminous landscape grew out of the passion that Michael had. And, you know, he continued sharing that passion, you know, right up to the end. And of course, that's what we want to try to do is, you know, share the passion of having fun, taking pictures. But, you know, considering all things photography, now a lot of things have changed. Um, you know, at one point, you know, it was like learning all these things. Now, pretty much everybody knows how to do them, meaning, you know, what's an F-stop and, you know, what's a dynamic range mean? What's all these technical terms mean? And uh, what I've been doing lately is if you watch the site, I'm going back and called Rediscover. And I've been taking some of Michael's older, older articles and kind of cleaning them up and republishing them because they're timeless. Mm. You know, they're in Michael's words, but, you know, they bring back the basics. So if you're looking for the basics, we can come back to that. But in the end, it's still all about, you know, learning the most you, you can about photography, whether it's new techniques such as, uh, you know, learning how to make better prints, which was part of the Shooting with the Masters uh, series we did. Yeah. You know, learning the history of Leica, which is a, a very a big series we did when we visited Leica and um, did the history of Leica and visited with all the manufacturers. Now you get an appreciation of where photography started because they were one of the ones that defined 35 millimeter frame format photography. Um uh, to uh, contributors that write about, uh, you know, how to get the most out of an image. You know, some articles are about how you visit a location and turn out photography. And all, it's our audience, there's also a lot of them are contributors, and it's all about sharing. We call it the Photographer's Knowledge Network in the end. But it's all about those that, that, that passion of going out and taking pictures. And along the way, in 2004, Michael did his first workshop, which was in Iceland. And after that, you know, workshops started to be plentiful. But at that point, Iceland was didn't even have tourists. Oh my <laughs> and god! Now it's oh like overrun <laughs> with cameras. But, <laughs> and you know, workshops are all that a very important part. And something I started with Phase One called POTUS, which was the Phase One Digital Artist Series, which we did very big workshops on. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was a, a great opportunity to bring photographers out in the field and shoot with them. And you know, there's something about number one doing it by yourself has its benefits i mean there's something cool about being out in nature taking pictures there's something cool just like there is with golf when you're with your buddies taking pictures yeah you know so those of us that don't golf you know we got a camera bag instead of a golf bag and a tripod and we go sit on a hill with some of our friends wait for the light to turn right you know not only tell some stories but we capture images together and talk about, you know, I'm going to shoot with a longer lens, or no, I think you should look wider. Are you overexposing or underexposing a stop or two? How are you shooting this shot? So, you know, you're standing out there in the field, and you're learning as you as, yeah, as you go. So workshops are and still are a, a very big part of Luminous Landscape. Yeah. Why we like our workshops uh, compared to some others, and everybody does them differently, ours have always been inclusive, meaning you pay one fee and you get everything. So 
in essence, you know, we normally pick you up at the airport and, you know, you, you ride with us, you, we eat dinner together, we shoot pictures together. So we're always together talking photography rather than do, you know, carpooling workshops where you might spend a lot less money to go to a workshop, but you're in a caravan of five or six cars driving down the street, you know, stopping at a certain spot and everybody trying to get out. We keep you all together so that we can always talk photography. And now my workshops are much smaller. Uh, the workshop series I do in the Palouse, which is one of the most amazing places in the U.S. to visit, uh, I only do with four people. So it's me and four other photographers and a big suburban four-wheel drive van or a car, you know, like an SUV. And, you know, they pay a much higher price to go to it. But, you know, we learn from each other. And most of these guys aren't schluck photographers. They're not beginners, oh, yeah. mind you. So they know photography. But... You know, there's something about knowing it uh, together and learning together and, you know, having the chance to talk about experiences and different places we've been. So it's, you know, it's what it's all about. So that's the kind of way we like to do things and, you know, keep everybody together and, and, and do these workshops. So it's once again, it's about getting out there and I like to say having fun because that's yeah. to me what it's all about. Well, one of the things I really like about about the site is because I think one of the you know, one of the nature, one of the things about you know modern photo education, for for lack of a better word, is that so much uh, of what I see, especially in terms of YouTube, is all about emulation. It's like, hey, learn how this photographer does this, and yeah. people are in the pursuit of of finding out how that photographer does it so they can do it themselves. But what I like about what you guys do is that you really are a proponent of people learning the skills to be able to express their own individual voice, that you don't get locked into just, you know, trying to make, you know, copies of... Yeah. Of, of, of photographers, he's like, look, here's all this information on shooting, on especially printing, and try this, try that. You really encourage people to go out and play and experiment and take some risks. And that's why I think, you know, sites like yours are really invaluable. I mean, there's, you know, you can learn anything everywhere. There's no shortage of places you can use as a resource. But I think it's really important to really consider where you're learning from and what you're learning, especially if you want to be challenged to the point that you grow as a photographer. Uh, Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that sometimes the one of the most discouraging things for me is that I like to go to iconic places, but find the non-iconic or new iconic image there. Um, Lofa to Norway is a, a prime example of, you know, there's this one bridge, you've probably seen a million pictures of these red huts along this, you know, the ocean with a mountain and the sun and everything behind it. And you go to this place and you know, we did a workshop there last year, Art Wolf and I, um, and we said it'd be the last time we do a workshop there because we show up, can't deny it's beautiful, but every time we were showing up somewhere, there was five other workshops showing up. Hmm. And there's 60 people lined up on the bridge taking the same picture. And, you know, while it was great to be able to take that picture, there's no real individuality with it. I mean, there's, you know, there's, you could call up Lofoten and you'll find a, hundreds of the same picture. Everybody's planting their tripods in the same holes. So I have two philosophies now that I work with there is turn around first off, because sometimes, you know, you find there's something new and different, uh, some, you know, looking in a different direction. And the other thing is find the picture in the picture. For example, I go to Iceland a lot. I've been going there for years, shooting the same thing over and over again, got great shots. But then I put a long lens on one day and just said, holy cow, I don't need the whole waterfall. 
I just need a part of it. I can create a whole new art, you know, like where the water falls on the rocks and the, the mist is misting away and the sun's hitting it and making a little rainbow. You know, it's the picture in the picture. So, you know, you begin to start finding things that are still allow you to think differently and, and photograph differently, even if you're going to some of the more, you know, iconic spots. Shoot that iconic picture, but then challenge yourself with finding something that's different. Yeah. Are you still doing those monthly outings with your wife? With my wife? Yeah. Yeah, as much as we can. We, you know, we get in a car on a Sunday. <laughs> and this, uh, these are always fun because it's like, where do we go? I don't know. So we just kind of like pick a direction. And the funny thing is, it's so much fun to find out what you have close by. Yeah. And, and it's also fun because she's a brilliant photographer, but sees something so totally different in the way I do. You know, it's we get out of the car and I might go photograph like this bridge and this beautiful covered bridge. And then I start looking for her and I can't find her. Like, where are you? <laughs> she gets, gets swept away or something. And, uh, but you know, she finds her way under the bridge and she is looking straight up at the way the beams are or something. And, you know, she's got a brilliant vision, a brilliant ability to see. And see, that's also one of the fun things about shooting with other people is, um, you know, seeing how they sometimes see and go, God, it's right in front of me. Why didn't I see it? Oh yeah. And she's she's really she she's um she she defies what I normally photograph. I mean, everything's got to be perfectly level, and you know, and you know, she goes completely bonkers and has her own style. But she's much more freestyle thinker than I am. She can write poetry and she can paint. You know, I've tried painting and I throw paint on a canvas, but it doesn't look like what she can do on it. So. <laughs> You know, but the the point that I think is fun, and I, I would encourage you know the listeners, everybody, is even if your wife is not a photographer, you know, get in a car with her or your kids or something, and just drive somewhere with no real full intention of what you're going to find. You know, we we're driving along and we found this like weird factory building, and what it was was um, a, a place where they would take um, cannon shells apart, and there were all these giant shell casings and bomb casings all over the place and they decommissioned them. It was really, you know, oh, tons wow. of geometric stuff and it was very industrial, rusty, you know, weird looking things. But we just discovered this. I didn't know there was a place like this in this whole bunk town in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, we would sometimes find these individual little art antique stores and, you know, there's always something to photograph in those. So it's amazing what you can find if you drive. You have an old abandoned gas station or, you know, some guy that decorates his lawn with all these crazy ornaments and, you know, we'd be photographing and he would come out when we get into conversation. And next thing you know, he's in the picture, uh, you know, with all his craziness and you have your own adventure and you make your adventure and, you know, you meet people and you find out that, you know, we live in a crazy world with somewhat crazy people, but you know what? A lot of them are pretty damn cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You got to get, got to get out of the, got to get out of the house, got to get it out from in front of that computer. You know, yeah. life is meant to be lived outside of, you know, this confined, you know, this confined space we call home. I mean, this. Yeah. This, yeah. You just got to do it. Yeah. For example, we, we have a very active form on our site, as you're probably well aware, where, you know, you, a lot of people can post questions and things. And we have a lot of our form members who are really tech-oriented. Mm -hmm. And that's great. I mean, that's something that you find in photography. There's guys that like to read MTF charts and, you know, get into the scientific aspect of lenses and whether they're soft at the edge or contrast. And, you know, these lenses won't perform in this. You know what? I mean, I, I, I know how to read all those charts and do all those things. But, you know, to me, 
if I throw that 100 to 400 millimeter lens on and I go out and I shoot a picture and it works mm-hmm. and it focuses Absolutely. and I get my picture, I don't need the chart. You know, I need the camera. Show me if I can walk away with, with a good feeling about the photography I've done with that that device. I don't need to look at the chart. If I look at it on the computer and the image is tack sharp and I can see the caterpillar on the leaf, guess the MTF chart might actually be good. You know, but that's not going to tell me I can see the caterpillar on the tree. I got to get out there and find that shot and find those those images. And so, you know, it's great to be, you know, reading all this technical stuff and what it all means and understanding it. Um, but in reality, a lot of us aren't ever going to see any of that in the kind of photographs that we take. And I've been exposed to that, you know, obviously selling and being part of uh, phase one with the high-end digital equipment. You know, there is something about a phase one file that if you look at it, you wouldn't even need a chart. You would just know that it's really special. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure you've probably seen a phase one file. Or, oh, my God, yeah. You know, I, have, I, mean, I have the, friends at the, uh, the Huntington Library here in, uh, near, in San Marino, near Pasadena, and they use that extensively there. And every time I look at one of those files pulled up on that computer screen, it's just like, oh, my God. I know. <laughs> it's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, you, you know, that's... That's that really starts truly defining, you know, what the you know photography is capable of. Not that we all need that kind of thing, because right. a lot of the other cameras, a 24 megapixel camera, can deliver for 90 percent of the world exactly what they need. But you know, it is nice, and you know, it kind of reminds me of when I was shooting with 35 millimeter, and then you know, a friend brought over some transparencies that he shot on a Hasselblad, and I knew that I needed that Hasselblad camera because mm. there was something about looking at a 35 millimeter Kodachrome slide and a two and a quarter. Uh, two and a quarter square inch, you know, uh, Kodachrome slide from, you know, a Hasselblad camera. And it's just like, <laughs> so, you know, um, you know, size does mean something in that sense, but, uh, you know, that's not that you really need it. Um, but to, it's, I don't care whether it's with the iPhone or whatever. It's just about taking really great, fun pictures. Yeah. And challenging yourself each time you end up taking those pictures. I used, uh, I did uh, something last year which shocked a lot of people. Um, and I'm going to have an article on it sometime in the next month or two. I'm kind of working at it now. I did a project, and I believe a lot of photographers, um, and we share this on our site quite a bit. There's quite a few articles about doing a project. Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, a lot of what we do, we have an endowment, as you probably know, where we give right. grants mm-hmm. out. And you know, obviously, that's focused on projects. So, and my friend Brooks uh, from the Lenswork, um, he's all about making you know projects. If you look at the Lenswork magazine, which is an amazing magazine of photography, uh, it's about projects. So I decided because I had picked up my iPhone and I discovered an app called a Hipstamatic app, and I found a lens and a film combination. That's kind of how they pair them up. That were really cool. So I said, wow, it's kind of, what it would basically do is take an image and based upon, you know, the tilt of the camera and, and you know, all the different relative um, changes, uh, they had some algorithm and they would take the image and reduplicate it and do a double exposure um, based upon that certain thing. So it was all kind of haphazard. So if I shot a picture, I would take it and, you know, take a number of pictures, tilting the camera a whole bunch of different ways and find one I like. But I shot it in square and I shot it in black and white and it was called Being Square, Seeing Double. And for like three years, I went around and while I did most of my shots, I would always get the camera out and do a hypsomatic shot. I was in Lisbon last week and uh, we entered this cathedral 
And I had this brilliant ceiling. So I saw ah, the hipstamatic. I almost forgot that I had the iPhone in my pocket because <laughs> I'm shooting with uh, the new Fuji X-H1 doing a test review of it. And I, you know, so I got that out and boom, 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 boom. And within five minutes, I had it up on, on uh, Instagram because it turned out so cool. So I did a whole thing and my whole studio was, uh, you know, I made a whole ton of these prints and it was really amazing. It was well accepted. People really liked them. And, you know, I had the photographer will criticize the photographer for shooting with an iPhone because they say it's not a camera. Many of them do. Mm-hmm. Although the person looking at the image when they would come to our open house, which we do have in two weeks, um, which we had like thousands of people come through in the open house and they would just love them. And not one person asked, what did you take it with? They don't care. People buying your art don't care whether you used XYZ paint or, you know, XYZ brush. You know, they care about what the image looks like on the wall. And what difference does it make? Is an iPhone really not a camera? Come on. It's probably one of the best cameras you can find anywhere because yeah. it's almost impossible not to take a good picture with yeah, it. No one ever asked Hemingway, uh, what kind of typewriter do you use? Exactly. You know, what make a ribbon do you use when you write your books? So, <laughs> you know, the point is it's um, – it, you know, you can even have fun with the iPhone. So even while I'm out shooting with, you know, a big tripod and, you know, trying to do all the, the perfect things that I do, you know, I always end up getting that iPhone out, turning the Hipstamatic app on and shooting one or two shots. And maybe there's something there when I get back. And, you know, they actually print really nice. We printed 1722 prints of them and, you know, they made for a really cool oh, yeah, show. Oh, they're amazing. And so that was my being square, seeing double project. And, you know, so I challenge everybody to find something that's special to you, you know, silly things, whether it's just photographing doorknobs, you know, in the city or mailboxes or, you know, window boxes, you know, you can start with so many different kind of projects and they can be, you know, running consecutive at the same time, but, you know, work on a project. And then when you're really ambitious, I mean, like, you know, photograph a, a friend that, you know, has a challenging disease. I mean, uh, Barbara Blondeau, who I said earlier in the show, was um, one of my instructors in school when she learned she had cancer. Her big project was documenting, you know, up to when she died. Mm. You know, the treatments, you know, the changes, the effects, and, you know, the, all the different things that were part of it, the loneliness, the isolation, you know, the vulnerability, and the, the fact that, you know, there's an end coming. Yeah. And, you know, how not only affects you, but affects you know, the friends. And, you know, so you can go for a very big project like that along the way, too. So um, this is the beauty of photography is, uh, one of the things that photography allows us to do that painters can't do and sculptors can't do, you know, is we can tell a continual story. You know, our photography can be part of a bigger picture in that sense. You know, you can photograph or paint something really beautiful or and you can sculpt something really nice. But the sequence of photographs and the ability to be able to, you know, carry it through a period of time um, is something really special that photography allows us to do. Yeah. I mean, it just makes me happy. God, you know. Oh, and you can, I can hear happy. it in your voice, man. It's great. It's infectious. <laughs> well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, and someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I'm going to tell you, obviously, we recently did Charlie Kramer um, on our site, and he's, to me, one of the finest landscape photographers there is. But I, and I, is he? can he be anywhere in the world? Anywhere, yeah. Then I would highly recommend that you think about talking to Joe Cornish. Okay. His, uh, he's a, a Brit, 
and I photographed with him in Scotland and Antarctica and a few places. And he's just got an amazing eye, and he's a quiet person. He's certainly not like me, but <laughs> he's so insightful and he's so inspiring uh, in the way he captures an image and, and sees things um, that I learned so much when I was out photographing with him. You know, this is that that whole thing where I was saying, you know, you'd be photographing on the hillside together. And, you know, we might we, I remember coming up to a tidal pool with him and my legs and my tripod were five feet. You know, up there I wasn't bending down. He ended up like taking his tripod six inches down, found a tidal pool, set something all up, got the mountains in the background, the sky. And I believe, Jesus, how did he do that? Yeah. So there's my man, Joe Cornish. That's awesome. Well, thank you. And Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. It really was a pleasure to finally have a chance to talk with you because I've been a long admirer of you and your, and your work there. And uh, oh. you don't disappoint. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Well, you know, thank you very much. And please don't be a stranger now that we've met each other, at least um, <laughs> this way. Maybe next time I'm out in California or someplace, we might get a chance to actually go out and take some pictures together. That would be awesome. Um, like to count you as my my new friend in photography and uh you know hopefully you know we can do something more and if i can ever do anything for you or uh we can find any way to collaborate together just drop me a line you know i admire what you're doing and it's great that you've got the same philosophy of sharing things using uh, the medium that you're doing so congratulations you've done a great job your stuff is really great and I really thank you for letting me spout off for every time we've been talking. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks to Kevin for a great conversation. To find out more about him and his work, visit KevinRaber.com and LuminousLandscape.com. Beginning next month, I'll be teaching a series of workshops where I teach my personal approach to street photography. In a week, I'll be teaching a course here in Los Angeles, and we have one slot left. As well, I'll be in San Francisco in June at Street Photo SF and New Orleans in October. You'll find links for each of these in the show notes and the Candid Frame website. Sign up today. I look forward to meeting some of you soon. And you can show your support of The Candid Frame by writing a review in the iTunes store. As people search for podcasts to listen to, these reviews can lead people to us for the very first time. And that makes all the difference. So if you haven't already, please take the time to do it today. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help us to not only meet the cost of production for the show, but allow us to improve our podcast, YouTube channel, and website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal. You'll find links for both on the Candid Frame website or show notes. Thanks to Thomas Nilsson, Guso Desforges, Matthias Fox, and Nick Exposed for their recent contributions. It means a lot. Thank you. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but now you can easily share your favorite episodes on your social networks and help spread the word. And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at ebodyonex. 
And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.